One More Time, a one band podcast. I'm James Ryan, and today we'll be talking about the different band auxiliaries. Today's story was produced by myself. And now, Scott Swartz, who is the director of the Sousa Archives and Center of American Music. Hi guys, uh, this is James. I'm currently with Scott, who is the director of the Sousa Archives in the Hardy Band Building. Today's episode will be about auxiliary units. Um, typically, when we think about auxiliary units, uh, we think about uh, color guard, cheerleaders, twirlers. Um, today's um, Scott will be talking about um, Sousa performing at World's Fairs. Um, so Scott, did he have any auxiliary units when he was performing at these fairs? Well, that's a good question, James. Um, well, the simple answer is no. Uh, Mr. Souza did not have auxiliary units perform um, with his band at these world's fairs. That's not to say that he didn't have major soloists front the band for specific performances, but the um, the flags and pom-poms that we normally associate with um, marching bands um, would not have been part of Mr. Souza's performance. Um, we think of um, the Souza band's performances at World's Fairs. Um, the question is, um, is Mr. Souza's band an auxiliary component of those fairs or by extension, the inverse, were the fairs possibly an auxiliary component of Sousa's performances and marketing of them? I would basically argue that it was both. Um, um, The um, Sousa Band, and this is the civilian band that was formed in 1892 after Sousa um, leaves his command with the Marine Band, Um, he essentially um, becomes the lead band to kick off the Chicago um, World Fair of 1893, what we know as the Columbian Exposition. Um, the official opening of the exposition was May 1st, 1893, and it continued until October 30th of that year. Now, most of you would think, well, all right, Mr. Souza then has nearly a full year to you know, prepare for this kind of performance, but the reality is he did not. Um, when you do a world's exposition, it's usually a, a temporary setup. Um, you build buildings very quickly um, to highlight technology and innovation. Um, it's usually last up to six months, and that's a long one, and for shorter ones, only a couple months. So essentially, as you kick off your expo, you have to build stuff. So Sousa, his band is brought to Chicago for an inaugural ball for the um, expo on October 19th of 1892. Um, The following day on the 20th, the band plays a parade. And on the 21st, um, the band plays for the first building that was completed, um, that building dedication to officially kick off the start of the construction phase on October 21st. Now, mind you, 
the Sousa Band's first concert is actually in September. Actually, it takes place in Plainville, Plainfield, New Jersey, and they do 32 concerts, kind of getting all of the rough spots worked out as they travel west to Chicago for this expo introduction. Imagine this, um, no one knows who or what this Sousa band is. Um, those in DC know who he is, but no one else. And now he's coming to Chicago to kick off a world's exposition to a, a huge audience. And um, he shows up and plays as an untested band, those first three performances in 1892. And by the time they were done, the world, and particularly the Chicago community, took significant notice of this very spiffily dressed and extraordinarily sounding wind band that had all of the colorful appearance of a military ensemble, but all of the musical ability of a symphonic ensemble that they were not expecting. So instead of tooting horns, it was a true symphonic sound, and they took great interest in that. So that one performance, or I should say a set of three to kick it off, in some respects, the World's Fair becomes kind of an auxiliary unit to help market Mr. Souza and his band. The reviews were quite glowing for the most part for those performances, and um, he continues on with his tour. Then he um, returns and begins to play on May 22nd. Now, mind you, the fair kicks off on the 1st of 1893, and he's there on the 22nd, and he plays consistently until June 28th, and it extended performance engagement. Great asset for him, he doesn't have to tour the band for that long, you know, set of days, and he gives two to four concerts a day. The total visitorship for that essentially um, you know, six-month um, World's Fair was over 27 million people. In for that window of time that Mr. Souza played, right at the highlight, beginning of the summer season, um, you have millions of people who suddenly encounter the band and take great notice of that. Now, the World's Fair, the Chicago Expo, um, was unique um, because it was the first time that a World's Fair included an amusement park as part of its setup, and that's what the performers played. Now, the Chicago World's Fair itself would have been a terrible money-losing proposition if it were not for that giant Ferris wheel, the very first Ferris wheel that was created for that fair. Of course, that's not the Ferris wheel that everyone thinks of, you know, when they go to Chicago now. But an extraordinary 
device. And there were so many people interested in this new technology that the Ferris wheel absolutely kept the park from going bankrupt. Um, Sousa would have seen that, that Ferris wheel. Um, so we come back to the question, you know, is the fair an auxiliary or Sousa's an auxiliary? I think in this first instance, clearly, it is both. It did him well for the number of people who knew him and really kicked off his entire career. Um, and while I'd like to think that Sousa Band helped the fair from losing its shirt, we have to admit it was actually the Ferris wheel that kept the, the park from losing its shirt. Um, in terms of what he performed during the World's Fair, um, what were some of the compositions or some of the things that he did while he was there? Well, again, let's go ahead. He, he played normally concert pieces, many of his own marches, but one of the things Sousa began to figure out is if you have a ready population and you want to introduce one of your new works, um, to the broadest audience, do it at a major fair. And so he would, he would dedicate pieces. He was, at, in many instances, be hired to um, compose new works to, for the fair. Um, probably the first of his exposition compositions would be King Cotton, which um, anybody who's played in band will recognize. It is one of my favorite um, works. It was written actually for the Cotton States and International Expo that took place in Georgia. Um, and um, while the piece was composed on um, July 28, 1895, the piece wasn't unveiled until the band played at the Cotton States. Now mind you, it's not a world's fair, it's a regional fair, all right, focused on cotton. And the band plays at that expo between November 18th and December 7th of 1885. And the King Cotton March was played at every performance. The band played two and three performances a day. And of course, the publisher um, immediately began to sell the piano sheet music to that nifty march. If you like the march, you had to buy the music. So it was a win-win, a ready population to buy your new music composition. So coming back to the auxiliary, in some instances for the Cotton State Fair, um, it became his, his publishing arm or marketing arm for that particular march, as well as others that he would play, um, Stars and Stripes, and, um, hadn't been written at that point. That, that is complete in 1896. But the bottom line is after he finishes Stars and Stripes, um, he plays Stars and Stripes at every World's Fair in nearly all of the composition, or comp nearly all of his um, concerts throughout the rest of his life. Were there any other pieces that he composed that um, were for dedications for different things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, he, the, the Hail to the Spirit of Liberty, um, 
not quite as popular a piece, was written for the Paris Exposition of 1900. It was actually published on July 3rd, 1900. The piece itself was actually unveiled on July 4th of that year. Um, and um, again, um, the Paris Exposition was um, an international exposition. Um, that brought many um, countries together um, for the Hail of Spirit Liberty. That particular march was um, basically written for the dedication of the statue of George Washington passing on his steed, passing his sword to Lafayette. So we've got the American symbolically reaching back to the French to thank them. So that's the symbolism of that particular statue, which was a big deal. And the Sousa band actually played at that dedication. Um, the, um, the French newspapers were, um, were just absolutely taken by the, the Sousa band. They wrote extensively. Um, um, the, um, the Sousa band actually played two sets of performances for that Paris Expo. Um, the um, Paris Expo, basically, the first part of it, May 5th to the 15th, was an opportunity for the band, which was officially recognized as the American band. So essentially, we think of World's Fairs as um, showing, showcasing um, what is the future of a particular technology or performance style. And here is Mr. Sousa Band reflecting to the rest of the world, this is what America's wind band is. And he, he basically presents that. Um, between the May 5th and um, May 15th of 1900. And then he takes a leave of absence to do his first European concert tour, going to Germany uh, and touring there. And while the Germans were intrigued by uh, Mr. Souza initially, it took them just a little adjustment to his his approach to music. Um, they are still deeply bound by the Viennese waltz, Viennese traditions, um, and as such, you know, we have ours, and here's this American coming in and trying to tell us how we should be doing our music. Um, eventually, the dust settles on the German point. Um, Sousa then comes back to the Paris Expo and performs between July 3rd and the 9th of 1900 for this finale of the expo. And it, it, it's quite interesting. If you look at the, um, the readings, um, the, um, the July 2nd um, um, newspaper basically has here that after the band plays Germany, they report many tempting offers um, have been made to secure the band for this and next season to tour this side of the water, the Atlantic, but the management were unable to accept any of these offers. A special train has been secured to bring the band from a city outside of Paris 
into Paris that evening so that they may participate in the unveiling of the statue of General Lafayette. Okay. And they go on to state that basically Sousa's march, Hail to Spirit of Liberty, will be the new song that will be used for the dedication. Now, the actual performance of it um, for the dedication um, is kind of interesting um, because essentially what he plays is first the Star Spangled Banner and the French Marseillaise. And then we have opening remarks. Okay. Then we have um, essentially several dignitaries speaking about the beauty of the relationship between the French and the Americans. And then they unveil, they pull down the cloth covering the statue as Mr. Sousa's band plays, Hail to the Spirit of Liberty. Of course, afterwards, more talking heads, um, thanking one another. And at the conclusion of the dedication ceremony, Mr. Sousa then performs his Stars and Stripes Forever. Mind you, the march that's only four years old. In fact, actually not even four years old. So again, we've got a perfect marketing opportunity with great headline pull. So essentially, the expo is becoming an auxiliary marketing tool for Mr. Sousa's band. Did Sousa only perform his works at these fairs, or did he um, include other composers and arrangers? Well, it's interesting. Um, for the um, performances um, on the um, 14th of May, now this is before the band then leads to Germany, um, they list essentially the pieces that the Sousa band will play for that evening's concert. And they basically have Flatow's Stradella um, Overture, is what he kicks it off with. Um, then it's Ardennes, um, and then we've got Kling and Bizet, um, in excerpts from Carmen. Um, and then he does, well, I should say he does his um, lead cornetist at the time, Walter B. Rogers, then does a solo, okay, on um, basically um, Rogers. He finally does Songs of the Navy by Hall, and concludes with his march, okay, the Stars and Stripes Forever. So he's doing arrangements of others' music, um, largely to show that Americans can play their music, um, even if it is his arrangements. By extension, he's also flavoring it with his works. And um, that was a common practice for most of his European tours, was to play a little of the country he was visiting's music and then play mostly his. Um, did he always um, only perform at regional and national and world um, fairs um, consistently? Well, you know, he, he plays at many different expositions. We have the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Um, also in 1893, he plays the St. Louis um, Exposition. In fact, actually, he goes from the Chicago World's Fair to the St. Louis World's Fair. 
1894. He returns to do the St. Louis Fair in 1895. So there are key elements to this. Um, he does the Texas State Fair, um, which was a big deal in 1895, in 1895, that part of Texas, um, this would have been Austin, um, would have been still fairly small um, and largely cattle-driven. Um, he plays the Boston Food Fair for the first time in 1897. The Boston Food Fair is not a World's Fair. It is essentially a regional fair highlighting food production. Um, and actually, he writes a very famous march, um, one that I, I consider his prettiest, fairest of the fair. Um, it was um, written um, essentially on 1908, July 6th and 7th, 1908, um, and was then first performed on September 28th, 1908, for the Boston Food Fair. And the, uh, the march itself is really a reflection, not so much of the fair, but rather a pretty woman that he encountered during the fair that caught his attention. And so in some respects, the march lyrically describes not only what's going on in the fair, but the personality of that particular lady and the fair. Um, I just find it always quite intriguing. Um, of course, we've talked about the Paris Exposition. I think the one thing that stands out is the Pittsburgh Expos. Um, the Sousa Band would play once or twice a particular exposition, um, and that would be the end of it. Um, you know, the St. Louis um, Expo, he plays five times. The Boston Food Fair, um, four times. The Pittsburgh Expo, he does 18 times. His first performance is in 1897, and the last one is in 1915. And it's interesting, um, the P Pittsburgh Expo, which I believe it's 1905, um, the, there was a major um, World Series event, and I think I think it was Pittsburgh. I'd have to look at my baseball facts again. Um, was um, taking the lead in that particular series, and so the Pittsburgh Expo seemed to have a, a maybe heavier emphasis on baseball than technology, but it was a regional focus. The question is, 18 times, you know, what the heck? I mean, you think about it. Why would you stop in Pittsburgh? Yes, it's, it is a steel building center, um, but if you look at the routes um, between um, Pittsburgh and where the band was coming from and where it was going from, you'll notice that it's on a main train thoroughfare, either leading east, back to D.C. and New York, or west, Chicago, St. Louis, so essentially becomes a main drop-off point for the band to stop at, and what better place to spend two, three, four, five days performing and not having to be on the road in one single place doing two and three concerts a day and being assured that you had a steady paycheck at the end of that set. So quite extraordinary. Um, towards the end of um, the, um, let's say, 
until World War I, um, we find that the transportation is largely always coming from Willow Grove or Manhattan Beach, which were the summer spots where the band would sit for five, six, seven weeks performing, and then would head immediately west to essentially Pittsburgh for the next set of performances in a single place. Um, and it, I just find it intriguing, yeah, why Pittsburgh? Um, maybe we could think of Pittsburgh as another auxiliary of the Sousa Band. I suspect Pittsburgh would probably be a little wrinkled by that. So what was Sousa's last exposition composition? That's interesting because I've actually never listened to Fairs of the Fair. Um, and you say it's one of his most lyrical and beautiful marches, and I should probably said, you know, time aside to listen to that. Oh, definitely. It's, it's a beautiful march. Take some time. So in terms of his composition, you know, he, you know, performed and wrote marches for all these different expositions. Um, what was his last march that he performed and wrote? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the very last of his exposition compositions um, was written um, for the 1933 Chicago Century of Progress um, exposition. Um, the march, which went by the same name as the expo, was completed in 1931. But as your listeners, I hope, will realize that um, the Expo started in 1933, and they would remember, or should remember, that Mr. Souza actually died in March of 1932. Um, so this last commissioned work um, was published and released for the 1933 Exposition, but it was never performed, either by the Souza Band or any other band, largely out of respect for Mr. Sousa. So um, it's an unfortunate circumstance. He never had an opportunity to actually hear his piece played. Um, so maybe at some time in the future, maybe the Illinois band could help Mr. Sousa close out that chapter with a performance of this interesting work. So he performed at World's Fairs throughout his career until he died? Um, no, that unfortunately not. Um, prior to um, World War One, um, his band was well recognized, and they, um, the public, had high demand for it. And the high demand often enticed him to play at expositions. But after um, World War One, um, the public's interest in Mr. Sousa's music began to wane. Um, you know, he's He's had 30 years and a good run for a career, and the public was looking for a little hotter music, um, probably more jazz-like than um, what he was producing. So he eventually falls out of the expo and state fair um, routine and begins playing uh, more regularly, um, and luckily for us, in public schools, um, colleges, and universities. Um, he played here in 1930, although it was not with his band, he actually came here, um, for a performance of his um, work, the University of Illinois March, which he had written for Mr. Harding and the Illinois Band. 
um, the march was actually completed on June on the 6th of 1929 and was broadcast um, live um, by the Sousa Band on June 17th. This is before the Illinois Band actually got the music themselves. So in some respects, um, we see this you know, transition from um, World's Fair, um, state fairs and regional fair performances, um, getting the music into our students' and children's hands. And, um, a change in um, his approach to marketing his music. Uh, well, thank you, Scott. Uh, that's all. That's all we have time for today. Um, listeners, if you're ever in the area, feel free to visit Sousa Archives, which is located on the second floor of the Hardy Band Building. Thank you. For this edition of Two Minute Warehouse of Techniques, we have Corey Seepy, who is the director of bands at Milliken University. Prior to living in Kansas City, Seepy conducted and taught in Massachusetts, where he served as music director of the Charles River Wind Ensemble and auditioned adult group in the Metro Boston, and as director of bands at Icefoot High School. Seepy's recent awards include an honorable mention from the American Prize in Conducting and a finalist designation from the American Prize in Band and Wind Ensemble Performance. So what I'd love to talk about today is listening. I think most directors would agree that uh, listening in many forms is a primary focus uh, in any rehearsal at any level. And it's something I use a lot uh, in part because it's, it's primary to music, which is an oral art form. But um, having people listen in different ways keeps everyone in the room engaged. Uh, and that's one of my big philosophies, um, especially at younger levels, but also at the collegiate level, is to make sure everyone's fully engaged in the process of making music. And if everyone's really listening throughout the rehearsal, I think that accomplishes this uh, really effectively. So a few simple strategies. First of all, when I'm conducting, I'm almost always highlighting important parts uh, and or issues while, while conducting. This is great because you don't have to stop. So it could be as simple as pointing to primary material when the accompaniment is too loud. It could be as simple as pointing to your ear when something is, is out of tune. Um, there are many sort of gestural ways to guide people's listening uh, while conducting. Um, when I do stop, I, I like to ask questions um, just to make sure everyone's on their toes. So these could be general, uh, such as what are we listening for at letter K, uh, or more directed listening, uh, such as, hey, can we listen, uh, I don't know, to the counterpoint and the alto voices here? And if you can't hear that, maybe you're playing too loudly. Um, when I do isolate sections, let's say I'm working with, um, I don't know, just the trumpets, I'll often ask members of other sections to weigh in. Uh, for example, uh, you know, at, at a lower level, it could be, hey, who, who's playing the loudest, the first trumpets or the third trumpets? Or with, with an older group, uh, perhaps, whose pitch is, is the lowest on the C sharp and, and, you know, addressing issues of intonation or blend? Um, uh, you know, what do you think of the way that they shape that phrase? What are some other options? This is especially useful for people uh, such as percussion who kind of are often uh, maybe sitting back there counting rests or uh, not as prone to listening to sort of isolated rehearsal segments. Um, and lastly, I think everyone's aware of this, but it's something I'm a huge believer in, it, it, the idea of audiation uh, or sort of an inner hearing and inner listening. I think this can be incredible as well. So just reminding people that when I'm working with a section, say it's uh, I'm having percussion and low brass play, um, I'll have everyone else, you know, please move your fingers and, and listen to your part in your head, you know, hear your part in your head. And I find that that uh, for sure helps the ensemble kind of align, but also 
magically when we go back to to the tutti version will improve pitch and, and balance and these sorts of things so um yeah just directing ensembles listening in creative ways i think can keep everyone's ears and minds engaged throughout the rehearsal and nobody nobody falls by the wayside Business podcast episodes about band auxiliaries and how they impact the band's overall performance. Our guests will also talk about their experiences and challenges they have encountered within their respective auxiliary unit. Our guests for this episode include Ivana Owana, co-legar captain of the University of Illinois Marching Illini, Brian Pastor, choreographer for the University of Illinois Marching Illini Color Guards, Samuel Danielson, color guard instructor at Maluka Community High School, and Gianna, who is the captain of the University of Illinois Alignment. So tell me uh, a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Uh, what were you involved with in terms of your auxiliary unit experience? And we'll start talking about that. My name is Ivana. I am one of the co-captains on the Marching Illini Color Guard. Uh, I'm a senior, so uh, for me, this is my fourth year being a part of the Marching Illini. It's been a great experience, and particularly with me being captain, I do kind of have um, a larger role to take on than some of our other members. Of course, everyone is valued at an equal level, but we kind of take care of a lot of the stuff that our band director, Barry Hauser, uh, does not have the opportunity to take care of that's very specific to each section and um, uh, to the auxiliary of the band. I've actually been involved in the marching arts for about 15 years now, which uh, kind of dates me a little bit, but um, I kind of began by listening to the Phantom Regiment. Uh, I got that from LimeWire, which also dates me because LimeWire is no longer around anymore, of course, but um, I began uh, playing on tenor saxophone in high school. I moved to Euphonium, mostly because I was into drum corn. I wanted to kind of try that. So in high school, of course, I did marching band. I'm from Pena High School, a really small high school in Illinois, um, about a 30-member band. So I started pretty small. Um, then I, of course, I entered into the U of I here. I was a euphonium, euphonium performance and education major. Um, during that time, I was also a member of the Marching Illini for four years in the baritone section. And then in terms of my auxiliary experience, I actually didn't start spinning until I got to college. Um, I met a now really good friend of mine, Kane O'Brien. He marched Cavaliers Drum Corps from 2008 to uh, 2010. So he kind of, uh, essentially taught me what I know about Color Guard. Um, he prompted me to audition for the Cavaliers in 2013. So I did and got a spot there. So I was able to march with the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps out of Rosemont um, in 2013. And he also kind of prompted me to get into the world of Winter Guard. So um, I've been able to march with Blue Horizon Winter Guard. They're out of, uh, they were out of Charleston, Illinois. They're Independent A and then Avidity World out of St. Louis. Um, so they kind of, Kane really started my, uh, you know, love of Color Guard. So I'm really thankful to him for that. And then um, I've been lucky enough to teach at uh, various high schools around Illinois, um, Monticello, Illinois, Morton, Illinois, Carl Sandberg up in um, Tinley Park, Illinois, and teach at some clinics like Smith Walbridge and, of course, uh, Marching Illini. So I've been able to work with them for now six years. I'm still working with them. So 10 years altogether with Marching Illini. It's been uh, quite a long time. So I'm senior here at the University of Illinois uh, studying advertising and I am co-captain of the Alliance dance team. This is my fourth year here on the dance team and I'm also part of Delta Gamma sorority. Hi, my name is Sarah Danielson. I am the color guard director for Manuka Community High School in Illinois. Um, we have a great big band and a great big 
guard this year. We are running about 250 kids all together. That includes our guard, our band, and our percussion. Okay. Um, just to get more in terms of, you know, how, you know, your personal involvement in Color Guard, um, let's talk about, you know, how did you get in Color Guard? Maybe how, you know, you You've heard about it, and what is it? Yeah, so I actually started doing Color Guard about 10 years ago when I was in middle school, and uh, I have been in concert band, or I was in concert band from fifth grade until my senior year of high school, uh, and I played the saxophone. But when marching band was first offered to me at my in my district at seventh at the seventh grade level, um, I realized that I was terrible at playing the saxophone. So I was like, you know what? I still want to be in marching band because a lot of my friends were, but uh, I, I clearly can't play my instrument. It, so I got to do something else. And at the time, Color Guard was something that was offered. And so I was like, you know what? This is something that I'm willing to try. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, it turns out I really sucked at it. I was horrible at Color Guard. I never knew what was going on. I couldn't do a drop spin. So it was very embarrassing that I couldn't do this for about a full year. However, returning to marching band in eighth grade, I really hunkered down and I was like, you know what? This is something that I want to do. I know I suck at it now, but I know that I can get a lot better. And you know, a lot of my friends are still in it. So I I just got to push through and I got to do it. So getting into high school, I did the audition. I was one of I think four new people on the team. So it was, it was very intimidating having a lot of older people who were significantly better than me, but I didn't want to let my, I didn't want to let my standards fall just because I was afraid of being there because I thought that I was worse than other people. So I practice every single day in high school. And I, I know that sounds like such a nerdy thing to say, but I really felt like I had to. And it was something that I learned to enjoy a lot, not only because it gave me uh, a lot of stress relief because it is a really good form of cardio, but also just because it was cool to see myself getting consistently better at something. And that was not something that I had experienced in my life before, like getting better consistently while also enjoying what I was doing. So that was so much fun for me in high school. I also had the opportunity to go to some marching band camps, Smith Walbridge Clinics. That's actually the largest marching band camp in the country. Um, So I took leadership classes there. I took flag classes where I was just able to learn how to be a better captain, how to be a better member in general. And um, with our current band director in college, Barry Hauser, actually being one of the people who uh, leads Smith Walbridge Clinics, it was a pretty easy transition for me to come to the University of Illinois and march here. So I've danced my whole life. It's always been like an enormous part of my life. And when I came to college, I knew I wanted to continue dancing. So I looked into what dancing they offered here at University of Illinois, saw that they had a dance team, knew right away I had to try out. And from there, I fell in love and could not quit. <laughs> In terms of getting along with online next year, what did the audition process look like? And it was it intimidating? Very. Um, <laughs> very intimidating. Uh, the first audition round involves you performing a solo. And from there, there are cuts. So then judges decide who moves on and who goes home. Um, after that, you learn a minute routine involving hip-hop, jazz, and palm. Actually, it's a minute 30. 30 seconds of each. You learn that very, really quickly, and then you have to sit in a hallway and you can't practice until it's your time to audition. And sometimes you get lucky and you go right away, or sometimes you're the last one sitting out there for two hours, and by the time you get in there, you don't even remember the dance. But then there's also a question and answer part, and I think that's all. But it's very, very stressful, long day, but worth it in the end. 
And then usually it's somewhere in the middle of April that we actually have the auditions. The audition process itself is around six or seven hours. Um, and it starts in the morning with a welcome. We do kind of like a meet the team and meeting our uh, new members of, or new prospective members, of course. And uh, during that time, everyone just kind of sits down, gets to know each other for a little bit. We start with a stretch block and then we move on to fundamentals. So a lot of the same things that we did in the clinic just to make people comfortable, you know, understanding, hey, this is how we toss here. This is uh, how, how hard of tosses that we do. This is how hard of spinning we do. So we just kind of get a feel for everybody. And then we do teach them some things. If people came from programs that may have not taught, you know, a one and a half 45, for example, which for those who don't know is a somewhat difficult toss if you've never done it before. So if you've come from programs who haven't taught things like that, we go ahead and teach you during that first half of the audition process. And then in the middle of the day, we break for lunch. Usually we'll go hang out on Green Street. It's a great time for everyone to get to know each other, you know, make some new friends, stuff like that. And then we come back during the afternoon and uh, either the coach or the captains will teach a choreographed routine. In the case of this year, uh, 2019, uh, myself and my co-captain, we created a routine because at the time we did not have a choreographer and we did the routine to Billie Eilish's bad guy. It was a lot of fun. Everybody was really into it and it was cool to see everybody progress. The routine itself was about uh, 60 seconds or so and we taught it within about a three hour period and then at the end we did small groups. We have Professor Hauser come in and uh, the captains and Professor Hauser will watch these small groups and everybody goes between two and three times and after that uh, we'll just give everyone final goodbyes we get everybody's email just to make sure that we're able to contact them afterwards and then uh, the captains will sit down with our director and we make our decisions accordingly based on what we saw during the auditions we focus on did they have a good attitude throughout the day how was their work ethic if they weren't getting something down, were they making sure to rehearse before we had another block or something like that? So there are a lot of factors that actually go into auditioning, and that's what kind of makes it a little bit more difficult, I would say. And what was the t- what is the typical size of being um, of your group? So the color guard uh, is typically about 40 people, uh, 40 to 44, depends on the unit. Uh, the drum corps itself will be 150 people. That's including, you know, um, the brass, the uh, battery, the pit, and then, um, you know, any drum majors and things like that. So 150 total, typically about 40 people in the color guard. Um, we, this last year we had 35 kids this year we have 31. It really just depends on how many seniors I lose last year. I lost 12 seniors. So we're, um, growing back up to where we were last year. So we're at 31 this year and the team just keeps on growing. Um, when I first started it out, I actually went to high school at the same place I coach now. We, my senior year, we had 12 kids. So it's grown a lot in the last couple of years. Um, we were able to make it over 30 last year. And then uh, before then, we were only in the 20s before I took over. So um, um, maybe let's talk about more some of the tradition that you have um, between color guard um, and drum corps and marching alumni. Um, are there some differences? Are there similarities that you might have? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the traditions of marching line aren't necessarily specific to the color guard. They're more specific to the band itself, just because of the storied history of it. Um, you know, the, the the tradition of playing alma mater at the end of the, of the games and things like that. So, you know, within the color guard, there aren't really that many traditions apart from just 
uh, circling up before we march out um, and you know, essentially giving a pep talk. And the color guard does a little uh, chant things that, that's led by the captain. So that's the most of the tradition for the color guard. But, you know, for the, the band itself, there's, of course, many traditions, the three and one, um, Aussie, wow, wow, things like that, that, you know, are just considered traditions just because of the past. Um, in drum corps, uh, there's traditions with the Cavaliers, uh, you know, before every show, there's, you learn your core song. Um, so you'll sing the core song, you'll do what's called the Cavaliers handshake, which is a little handshake we do. And the point of that is to really, you know, through warm up before a show, you really get in your head, you're thinking a lot about your show, you're thinking about, oh, I need to hit this port six and movement two. And then right before we go on the field, that's when you go, you meet as the, the whole ensemble, you sing the core song, you do the handshake, you just kind of shake off the nerves and just remember that this is an incredible opportunity to perform as a brotherhood and not just as yourself. Um, so you kind of get to get out of your head a little bit and be excited about the performance and just connect with your brothers so that when you go on the field, you're, you're really ready to go. In terms of, you know, efforts to be inclusive on your team, um, how do you guys make sure everyone feels inclusive, you know, all the input is heard, and then do you have any ideas where you can be more inclusive in the future? Yeah, so the first thing we do is um, after auditions or during the audition process, I should say, all the way through band camp, we do make sure to continue to have these like 30-minute powwows at the beginning where everyone just kind of sits and talks with each other. We do, you know, the standard name, major, hometown, grade, everything like that. But um, we have also since done like pronouns just to make sure that everybody is identified appropriately with what they want to be called and also preferred names if they have a name that they like to be called that's different than their birth name. That is something that we take very seriously on our team as we do have a lot of members who um, identify as something other than what they were born with. And we want to make sure that everybody feels included in that way. And in addition to that, um, kind of moving off the topic of personal identity, moving a little bit more towards race and different cultures, we are very sensitive in terms of that. We always let everyone know, hey, if something is making you uncomfortable, meaning it's a certain person, or if it's the way that we do something and you feel like it's infringing on your culture, your religion, whoever you are, um, that's definitely something that we can address as captains, but also something that we can bring up to Barry. And as well as that, we have also brought up to Barry um, kind of, or sorry, excuse me, Professor Hauser. We do have uh, a good relationship. That's why we are on a first name basis, but with Professor Hauser and um, specifically in terms of race, um, this is something that's been very important to me, making sure that everyone on the team does not feel as if they are the only one um, from their group uh, in the band, because our band uh, does have a lot of white people in it, just to be frank. Uh, so we want to make sure that those who are in minority groups uh, don't feel left out, whether it be socially or actually in band. And so in order to kind of combat that, we've talked to Professor Hauser about different ways that we can make sure that we're incorporating music that's not just like white music, that's from multiple different cultures. And we always make sure to use um, the safest language that we can around everybody. And again, you can always come to anybody if there's any sort of a problem. For Color Guard, especially in the beginning of the season, every Wednesday, we try doing a fun activity at the very end of our practices, just because it's a long week. So we really try to do some team bonding activities, whether that be partner yoga, or um, we've done the Hungry Hungry Hippo uh, game with the kids where they're actually on scooters and they're trying to collect as many dodgeballs as they can <laughs> um, and just kind of bringing some fun like group activities going we've done a lot of uh, team building exercises um, where they have to actually rely on their team members and 
that's always very eye-opening, especially to the kids, because they realize how much they need to listen to one each other. One each other. Um, so I, I really enjoy doing those, and the kids really learn from them, too. Um, I would love to incorporate more things outside of school for the kids that they can put on without me having to be there. Um, for our varsity team during Winter Guard, we always do dinners together. Um, we have a parent come, we have parents sign up to bring a dinner each week, and then the kids all sit together and eat dinners every Saturday night. Um, but I would love to get the kids to start like doing sleepovers or team dinners outside of school, if that makes sense, or even just going to like a bowling alley or something that doesn't have to involve the coaches and they can just be kids and have fun, but also be with the team. Um, so I'm trying, we're trying to incorporate that more. That's one of the things I actually loved when I was in high school is that they actually set that kind of stuff up where a family would sign up for one weekend and then the kids would go there on a Friday night and watch a movie together or they would do um, like karaoke or something at someone's house and just have a ton of fun. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for, um, for your time to this podcast and for the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this episode of One More Time on Windband Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please take a moment to share it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and help more people listen to and enjoy the show. If you want to stay current with Illinois Bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois Bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. You can always check out our website for more information, which is www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producers of this episode are Dr. Anthony Messina, and this episode was hosted by myself, James Ryan. The mixing of the episode was done by Marcella Champion, and of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Band faculty. Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine Applied Arts. We would also like to thank Ivana Owana, Sarah Danielson, Brian Pastor, Scott Swartz, and Gianna for the contribution to this episode. We hope you will join us for our next episode of One More Time, a Wind Band Podcast.